This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we appreciate you tuning in to the program today. Our first segment of this episode looks at one seldom-discussed aspect of the trans trend. We know that more and more troubled young people are being told by activists and various authority figures that the solution to their troubles is to get dosed and diced and to try to switch to the opposite sex. But what you won't hear much about is that an increasing number of these individuals soon realize that the attempt did not solve whatever problems they were experiencing. And so they detransition. They try to undo the chemical and, in some cases, surgical changes that were made to them. And many find that much of the damage can't be undone. And so they go on to start warning others about the perils of going down this dark path. The second segment of the show is about a related trend, and that is that the Canadian government has been found to be designating more and more money, money that it collects from taxpayers to help finance drag queen story times and other programs of that nature. In many cases, public government organizations such as libraries are compelled to host these kinds of events because of the government money that's tied into them, which we'll hear all about in a report from trumpet writer Abraham Blondeau. Our third segment will go in a different direction, examining the U.S.'s new nuclear deal with Iran. Now you may be thinking, wait, what new nuclear deal with Iran? And that's for good cause, because there has been an extraordinary amount of secrecy surrounding this. But there are whispers and details emerging, so we'll take a look at the known knowns and also get into some speculation about some of the unknowns as well in a conversation with the Trumpet's correspondent in Jerusalem, Mihailo Zekic. And then our last word today takes a look at the state of Christendom in the United States today and what the lessons are for each of us. So that'll be at the end of the program, and we'll begin now with a look at some individuals who have gone through so-called transitioning to the opposite sex. I don't want what happened to me to happen ever again to any other child. That was Chloe Cole speaking during a May 25th interview with True North, and the thing that happened to her, it all started at age 12, when she tumbled deep into an internet rabbit hole. In the depths of this hole, Chloe became convinced that maturing into a woman would be an appalling and humiliating experience. A lot of the feminist dogma that I was being exposed to on websites like Instagram and Tumblr would talk about how painful the female experience is, how horrific and useless things like pregnancy and childbirth were, Things like that made it very, very, made me very, very afraid of becoming a woman and eventually experiencing those things for myself. Many of the individuals who were posting these kinds of comments in the communities that 12 year old Chloe frequented were, or at least claimed to be, young girls who said that they had been born into the wrong body and that they had started to identify as male. I found it really relatable because. Growing up, I was a bit on the tomboy side, and I always felt like there was something that was setting me apart from the other kids. 
And now it seemed like I had an explanation for this feeling. Now, the truth is, almost all young people experience social struggles and concerns about fitting in among their peers and apprehension about adulthood. If Chloe had lived in a different time and place, the authority figures in her life would have reassured her that what she was feeling was very common. They would have explained that womanhood is a wonderful thing, and they would have lovingly guided her to embrace her biological nature. But this was not a different time and place. This was California in 2016. So Chloe and her parents were soon in consultations with a range of specialists who said that she had severe gender dysphoria and needed urgent medical treatment. And they told my parents that there was no other option, that it couldn't wait until I was an adult, that it had to happen now. And if it didn't, then it would be very likely that I would kill myself. She says that at one point her parents were asked by these specialists if they would rather have a dead daughter or a living son. She wasn't in the room for these momentous conversations, and she says the truth is she was never suicidal until after her parents were pressured into following the specialist's advice. But they did follow it, and at age 13, Chloe was put on a potent puberty blocker called Lupron, which suppresses the body's production of sex hormones. And she says that within weeks of the first injection, she started to experience hot flashes and unusual itching all over her body. I was going through menopause when I was in eighth grade. Chloe also became lethargic, despondent, and unable to focus at school. But then it was time for the next phase of her treatment, testosterone injections. Before the first injection, an endocrinologist told her that the combination of puberty blockers and testosterone injections would have side effects that would make sexual activity painful for her without topical estrogen. But being a child, she had no clue what he was saying. I was 13 years old. And I wasn't sexually active yet, so I didn't really understand what any of this meant. The same endocrinologist also told Chloe at this time that these drugs would likely affect her fertility as an adult. But I was still a kid. I wasn't thinking about having kids of my own. I didn't know how important that would be to myself yet. And so I just said, I'm fine with that. So Chloe dismissed these insignificant-sounding caveats, and she was injected with testosterone. And soon, all of that lethargy that she'd been feeling was overtaken by liveliness and confidence. I felt amazing, because now my body, I thought, was finally healthy again. And I had my energy back. She also began growing more angular and muscular, with a sharper jawline, broader shoulders, and increased body and facial hair. And she began sounding like an entirely different person. Throughout high school, I actually had a deeper voice than most of the boys my age, and even some of my teachers. With the chemical alterations in place, the specialists said it was time for the next step in Chloe's transition, going under the knife. So on June 3rd, 2020, at age 15, she underwent a double mastectomy. My breasts are completely gone. During the months before and after her mastectomy, Chloe was going by the name Leo. And despite some complications that resulted from that surgery, she became kind of a darling at her high school. It was, it was 
really nice for a while. I was making friendships and getting social opportunities that I didn't really have before. So there was some excitement in those first weeks and months. But it didn't take long for the novelty to fade and for the horror to set in. A few months after the surgery, Chloe began recoiling away from the person she saw in the mirror. The sight of her figure physically nauseated her. And it was then, for the first time, that she says she became suicidal. By May of 2021, Chloe, now 17 years old, was convinced that her attempt to transition had been a colossal mistake, caused mainly by medical experts who had pushed it on her and on her parents. The process of my diagnosis wasn't thorough enough. They had on file that I previously had a diagnosis of ADHD, that I had some very strong symptoms of autism and other, and that I had social difficulties and that I had symptoms of a body image disorder. But none of this was ever taken into consideration during the diagnosis or the treatment. Overcome with regret, she stopped taking testosterone injections and began presenting as female once again. But sudden cessation of the male sex hormone was another great jolt to her young body and mind, and it left her physically sickly and emotionally unstable. The way back from my transition hasn't been easy. It became really difficult to regulate myself emotionally because of the extreme hormonal imbalance in my body. And it was really difficult for me to get out of, and it was affecting all my relationships. By the time she was a few months into her senior year, Chloe had essentially no friends, and she soon failed out of high school. As the complications persisted, she also found herself largely rejected by the very medical specialists who had pushed her to transition. After stopping transition, you pretty much just get put, kicked to the side by your own doctors who helped you to get these treatments. They pull a complete 180 on you saying like, oh, well, we don't really have any, any data on patients like you or, oh, I've never had a patient like you. So I'm either not sure how to treat you or I'm just going to outright refuse to treat you. And I mean, there's no codes in place in healthcare for people who stop transitioning or regret their transition or have had some sort of complication from these treatments. So there's nothing for doctors to really abide by when deciding how to treat us. On top of all this, Chloe also became a target for harassment by the trans activists who had assured her years earlier that trying to become male would solve her problems. Just talking about my regret, they found it offensive. And they told me that my experience wasn't important. The activists told Chloe that she was harming the transgender community because of her message of regret. They said I was talking about experience and pushing it on other people. And in doing so, I was preventing people from getting the care that real transgender people needed. And so I was harassed and bullied until I stopped speaking about my experience for a while. 
Chloe stayed silent in her trauma for quite some time, but as she came to more fully realize all that she'd been through, she began to see that she could not keep quiet. I wanted to expose the, trans, the transgender community and how it takes vulnerable children and young adults and how it treats the people whose transitions are a failure. And I felt the responsibility to take that upon myself because I don't want what happened to me to happen ever again to any other child because this is never an appropriate treatment for children ever. Chloe has filed a high-profile lawsuit against her healthcare provider and the specific doctors who decided to perform what her lawsuit calls, quote, a mutilating mimicry sex change experiment on her. And she now devotes her time to speaking out against what she calls the abuse that it is to let a child believe that they were born in the wrong body. And whatever the trans activists may say, Chloe is actually far from alone in her experience. There's also the well-known account of a veterans affairs psychologist who convinced a deeply depressed Navy SEAL named Chris Beck that he was a woman trapped in a man's body. Beck said that since he was at such a low point in life, he was naive enough to buy into it. So he underwent hormone therapy, facial surgery, and breast augmentation. And about a decade later, he acknowledged that the whole thing had been a massive mistake and that he was detransitioning. He wrote, I have lived in hell for the past 10 years. I look back and I see how I destroyed everything in my life that was holy, the temple of God, our bodies. And I wish I had had someone that would have helped me. Since detransitioning, Beck has tried to be that person to others. So he speaks out now, warning parents and children not to let these so-called experts coerce them into making life-altering decisions. He wrote, quote, Someone has to try to slow this train down. So I stood up against madness to save innocent children. End quote. Then another example is Helena Kirschner, a woman from Ohio who began trying to switch sexes at age 20. In a Newsweek op-ed on June 25th of 2021, she wrote, I was given the green light to start my transition by my doctor on the first visit. One year later, I would be curled up in my bed, clutching my double mastectomy scars and sobbing with regret. End quote. She says the confusion for her was because what she thought was gender dysphoria actually turned out to stem from other mental health issues. And the cross-sex hormones rendered her suicidal and culminated in two different hospitalizations for self-harm. On the topic of her decision to warn others not to follow her path, Helena wrote, quote, Real lives are at stake. Then there's also a young woman named Soren Aldiso. She was absorbed into niche online subculture groups at age 11, and she started cross-sex hormones at 17. Two years later, she underwent a double mastectomy, and she suffered massive bilateral hematomas from the uh, procedure, as well as hormone instability, serious gastroenterological issues, and a range of other terrible side effects. 
Soren was soon on 11 different prescription medications just to deal with all of the various physical and psychological problems. And six months after her surgery, she began detransitioning. In March, Soren testified to the Texas state legislature against gender-affirming care, saying, quote, children deserve better than plastic surgery and hormones. And there are many others. There are stories of women such as Camille Keifel, Grace Ledensky-Smith, and Charlie Evans that are all quite similar. And in the case of the last one there, Charlie Evans, after she went public with her warnings, she says that she was contacted by more than 300 other people who said that they had had similar experiences. So the trans activists say that the experience of Chloe and these others are so rare that they're irrelevant and that they're actually dangerous to even bring into the discussion. These trans activists say that the number who experience transition regret is so minuscule that it shouldn't be allowed to slow their crusade to radically remake society. But it's clearly not the case. The Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism published a study last year. It was called Continuation of Gender-Affirming Hormones Among Transgender Adolescents and Adults. And this study examined 1,000 individuals who started taking cross-sex hormones. And it found that four years after starting, around 70.2% of these people were still taking them. So this leaves almost 30% in Chloe's situation, 30% who regret going down this path that they were told would make them feel whole. And since the trans trend has gone mainstream so rapidly, even this 30% figure may not reflect the real long-term rates of reversal. Sarah Jorgensen, a University of Toronto PhD student, wrote about this in the June 2023 issue of the Archives of Sexual Behavior. She wrote, The full extent of regret and detransition in young people transitioning today, under vastly different circumstances than in the past, will not be known for many years. End quote. So this is a chilling reality. The idea of switching sexes is being sold as a panacea to troubled youth, but the hormones and surgeries have permanent and grotesque effects on their bodies and minds. And we seldom hear about the way many of these individuals soon realize that they actually do identify with their biological sex. And they begin to wish that they'd never been pushed down this twisted, nightmarish path. So activists are telling people that trying to switch sexes will help them find happiness. And many, I think, really believe this, but the facts show that it's actually causing a great deal of suffering and misery. And this is a general phenomenon in human conduct that the Bible warned about. Proverbs 14.12 states, There's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So, you know, the solutions that people devise to try to solve life's problems seem sound to them. They seem right. But human perception is tragically unreliable. And in many cases, it's only after going all in on a certain method and then seeing that method catastrophically fail that we come to understand that we were in error from the start. And even then, we sometimes refuse to admit defeat. And instead, we double down on the same doomed solution. 
Jeremiah 17 verse 9 states, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's a lot of insight packed into this. It's saying that our hearts blind us very cleverly to our own evil. Even when we're behaving in utterly selfish, utterly destructive ways, our hearts can convince us, at least on some level, that we are the light of men. So how do we get past it? How can we rise above our faulty perception and our blinding self-deception? The only way is to stop placing our trust in our scheming hearts and place it instead in the God who created us. To learn more about how to place your faith in God instead of in yourself and your own perceptions, and to learn what the truth is about family and about men and women, please go to thetrumpet.com and order your free copy of our booklet, Why Marriage Soon Obsolete. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, and our next segment is about a trend that is related to the material covered in that first segment, and that is that the Canadian government has been found to be designating more and more money, money that it collects from taxpayers, to help finance drag queen story times and programs of that nature. In many cases, public government-funded organizations such as libraries are compelled to host these kinds of events due to the government money that's tied into them. So it shows that the rapid spread of non-traditional lifestyles is not really happening organically. It's actually being aggressively pushed by the government, as we'll hear about now in this report from Mr. Abraham Blondeau. Next week, Faye and Fluffy are coming to my town. All three public libraries in the community will be hosting a Drag Queen Storytime featuring the two men. Both wear women's clothes and wigs, except one has a full beard and chest hair coming out of the neckline on his strapless summer dress. In the audience will be elementary kids and their parents. Drag stars Faye Slift and Fluffy Souffle have been doing drag story time since June 2016, writes the biography on their website. They especially want to support families with LGBTQ2S parents and gender-variant children, and read culturally diverse books by providing a supportive and inclusive environment focused on fun. Everyone is welcome, end quote. The duo hosts a preschooler's variety show called The Fabulous Show, which is on the Family Channel, Family Junior, and YouTube. It has been nominated for several Canadian Screen Awards and won the Shaw Rocket Fund Kids Choice Award. 
The Shaw Rocket Fund is an initiative by Shaw, one of the largest telecommunication companies in Canada, to fund content creators to create quality Canadian children's content. These two have a jam-packed schedule. Every few days, the duo are doing a story time at a public library, hosting a dance party, participating in pride celebrations, or doing nature walks in the Toronto area. The two even host drag events for Purim, Rosh Hashanah, and Hanukkah. Between the live events and their TV shows, thousands of children watch them and interact with them each year. Faye and Fluffy are clients of Vision Drag Artists, a Canadian talent agency for drag queens. They represent 43 different drag queens, each sporting varying degrees of makeup, wigs, chest, and facial hair. On their website, Vision Drag Artists has partnerships with around 64 corporations and organizations. Nearly all of them you will recognize. They include Adidas, Amazon, Bud Light, Google, Hasbro, Joe Fresh, McDonald's, Manulife Financial, Loblaws, Marvel Studio, the Toronto Raptors, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and TikTok, amongst many others. The biggest corporations in the world, Canada's biggest banks, and Toronto's professional sports teams are all partners with Vision Drag. However, there's one particular partner that is of interest. It is the only partner that isn't a private corporation. Holding that distinction is the Parliament of Canada. It is no secret the Trudeau government supports the LGBTQ community, but this includes all members of Parliament, all political parties. The truth is public libraries, community centers, and schools are reaching out to Vision Drag and other agencies to proactively book these sort of activities. It is not only the drag queens pushing this kind of lifestyle into the lives of children. It is government-funded institutions pushing this agenda forward. Sticking with our duo for a moment, Faye, his real name is JP, and he is a teacher at the Toronto District School Board. Fluffy, his real name is Caleb. Uh, he is a DJ, performer, but also a child care provider, and he used to run a, a home daycare for kids. So why do so many of these drag queens have careers that revolve around children? Should men who cross-dress and read explicit LGBTQ books be allowed powerful platforms to impact young minds? Drag queen story times have become the tip of the spear in the culture wars. They are the foot soldiers of the LGBTQ movement's aggressive strategy to impact children. They have caused controversy in the United States and to a lesser extent in Canada. And despite some pushback, they continue to become more popular, some attracting large crowds of families and kids. So what is behind the rising tide of drag queen story times? The truth is, it is taxpayers like you and I. Whether we like it or not, municipal, provincial, and federal governments use our taxpayer money to fund Drake Queen Storytime in a variety of ways. 
The rise of LGBTQ population is not an inevitable tide, an evolution of morality, or even organic expansion. It is an intricately engineered initiative by the government to push the radical left social agenda. One way the government of Canada funds drag queen performers is the Canada Council for the Arts. This organization receives funds from the government to promote Canadian-produced art. They give grants to different performers, venues, and agencies. This past year, they received $500 million to promote Canadian artists. And of that $500 million, they gave $30,000 twice uh, to the Storytelling with Dre Queens organization based out of Vancouver. This organization support 18 drag queens, including some who are named Homo Hardware, Bearded Spears, and Satanics, to do story times to promote LGBTQ literacy with children and teens. Here are some other events funded by taxpayer money. The Ontario government partially funded an all-ages Christmas drag show with Miss Drew in Kitchener on December 1st, 2022. The Manitoba Theatre for Young People will hold a teenager's drag camp from August 21st to 25th. Teenagers will be taught how to dress up like women and perform on stage. In 2022, the Manitoba Theatre for Young People received over $200,040,000 in funding from the Canadian government. The Carousel Theatre for Young People in Vancouver hosted a junior drag camp and a teen drag camp in July of this year. And they had similar activities to the other drag camp, teaching young people how to wear makeup, dress up in women's clothing, and perform on stage. The theater received funds from local, provincial, and federal governments. The National Arts Center, the premier performing arts center in the nation's capital, was given $28 million in 2023 from the federal government. During the annual Winter Festival in Ottawa, it hosted a free all-ages drag queen story time including one performer who had pornographic content on their social media. The Winter Festival also featured a Drag on Ice event. The school board in the Quebec City region spent $1,600 this summer on a Drag Queen conference with performer Barbada de Barbados. Pride season, or what they call 2SLGTBTQI plus Pride season, began this summer with Liberal cabinet ministers attending an all-ages drag show on Parliament Hill, the very seat of our government. It doesn't matter where you live, what your teachers believe, or what school district your kids attend in. Drag Queen Storytime is becoming a normal activity. This is because provincial governments who control the curriculum viewed as part of their social agenda. Public libraries and performing arts centers schedule these events to conform to the government's agenda because that is who is funding them. This is the reality of Canadian education. Even the Toronto School Board is facing backlash from LGBTQ activists for giving parents the option to opt their children out 
of Drag Queen Storytime. Don't be surprised that it becomes a mandatory activity in many school districts in Canada. The same level of government funding is also present in the United States. In October of last year, the Republicans introduced the Stop the Sexualization of Children Act, which would prohibit the federal government from funding sexually explicit activities for kids under the age of 10. The act hasn't made any progress in Congress yet, but this is evidence that the federal government is funding these sort of programs. In addition to that, Drag Queen Storytime in New York City has received $200,000 in taxpayer money from the city and the state. Drag Story Hour New York also received several grants and subsidies from the Department of Education and the Council of Arts. The indirect method of funding allows governments to push the agenda without accountability. The radical left wants the LGBTQ lifestyle to appear to have an organic quality to its spread instead of being exposed as another social engineering effort. So here's a sampling of some of the books that are read at Drag Queen Storytime. One is called My Princess Boy, which is a mom's story about a young boy who likes to dress up. 10,000 Dresses is a book about a boy who dreams of wearing dresses and is ridiculed by his unsympathetic family. Prince and Knight is a story about a prince going on an adventure and finding romance in an unexpected place. Jacob's New Dress is about Jacob convincing his parents to let him wear a dress to school, just like he wears dresses at home. And The Rainbow Parade is a, is a picture book about a girl recounting the first time at a pride parade with her two moms. God created a child's mind to be very impressionable. Most of the habits, ways of thinking, and concepts learned as a child leave a lifelong impression on the individual's character. Drag Queen Storytime is engraving this lifestyle as a part of normal life in the hearts and minds of these children. It exposes them to crippling sin and perversion before they have the character and experience to make their own decision and discern the consequences of their actions. It forces them to make life-altering decisions before they properly understand anything about life. For most children, it is the parents who are putting them into these environments. If you are a parent taking your child to Drag Queen Storytime, you are either naive or willfully exposing your children to perversion. Drag Queen Storytime also exposes the ultimate aim of the LGBTQ movement. Most people in that lifestyle cannot procreate. So how do they perpetuate their lifestyle generation to generation? They have to plant the LGBTQ seed in the minds of children. By taking advantage of a child's naivety, innocence, and ignorance, they can shape the next generation to be LGBTQ, or at the very least accepting and embracing of the lifestyle. It is a simple fact of history that aggressive, society-altering ideologies always target children in order to fulfill their objectives. And all of this is being indirectly funded by you. The taxes we pay to the government eventually get funneled to perverts and pedophiles who are preying on our children to promote their ideology.
Our governments at every level are funding a culture war on your family. City councilors, school board members, mayors, state or provincial legislators, members of Congress and Parliament, and our heads of state are all on the side of the drag queens. This is all part of the long-term LGBTQ strategy coined by Tim McCaskill, the founding father of Canadian gay activism, where Canada is transformed from homophobia to homo-nationalism. The nation is at the tipping point where our only expression of nationalism is support for LGBTQ values. Despite all the controversy and debate over Drake Queen's story time, there is a question that no one asks. What does the God of the Bible think about Drag Queen story time? One passage of scripture reveals God's emotions as he watches the corruption unfolding in our nations, and it reveals the root cause of it all. Jeremiah 17 verse 1 reads, quote, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars, end quote. The sin of our peoples in these last days is so engraved in our hearts and minds, it is almost impossible to erase. This is a dreadful warning, writes Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Mr. Gerald Flurry in his book, Jeremiah and the Greatest Vision in the Bible. He continues, Sin becomes deeply etched in our minds, as it were written with a pen of iron and the point of a diamond. End quote. Notice where it leads. Verse 2 of Jeremiah 17. While their children remembered their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. End quote. Our sins are becoming altars and groves in the minds of our children, engraved sins that they cannot forget. This is the insidious consequences of Drake Queen's story time. So, what is God's reaction to our sin and hardness of heart? Verse 4. And you, even yourself, shall discontinue from your heritage that I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you know not. For you have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. End quote. We have kindled God's wrath and will be severely punished. Passages in Ezekiel 4, 5, and Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 6, talk about this correction that is coming. And that is the ultimate result of these culture wars, divine correction. Yet God also reveals the solution to our terrible problems in verse 5. Thus says the Eternal, Cursed be the man that trusts in man, and makes flesh his arm, and whose heart departs from the Eternal. All of the problems in our lives, rampant sexual perversion, corruption in government, it is all caused by our human nature, looking to ourselves and not to God. But look at what God says in verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusts in the eternal and whose hope the eternal is. If you want to be blessed, we have to repent and turn back to God, trusting in his laws and truth. And this is all God wants from us. He wants true repentance and living a life of obedience to his laws of love. This is what children should be learning about, not the depths of satanic perversion. There is a war going on for your children, 
your family, and your mind. The only way to win your spiritual war is to turn to God's truth. Please read Mr. Flory's article in the latest trumpet, The Inspiring Reason Marriage and Family Must Be Defended, to learn more about this incredible truth. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Thank you for staying with us. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and for our next segment here, we will talk about the U.S. government's new nuclear deal with Iran and the extraordinary amount of secrecy that is surrounding this agreement. For this, we've got trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic calling in from Jerusalem, Israel. Really appreciate you joining us today, Mihailo. Thank you for having me. So, Mihailo, to begin here, could you talk a little bit about the original nuclear deal, the one that President Obama uh, sort of spearheaded there back in 2015, and then we'll work our way up to the latest developments? Well, of course. Now, there's a lot of moving parts uh, going into that nuclear deal. We'll just hit some of the high spots. Um, that was called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. And you'll notice it's called a plan of action, not uh, a treaty or an agreement or uh, uh, accords. That's because if it was any of uh, those things, then Congress would normally have to have oversight on it. But because it's uh, this uh, term without any, shall we say, political definition or legal definition, Congress was able to be sidelined by it. And the Obama administration wanted a lack of congressional oversight and shall I say a lack of oversight in general uh, on this agreement for good reason because there's a lot in it that it might look good on the surface but it's actually pretty bad news for the Middle East and for the world. Um, Iran was uh, obligated to cut back on its nuclear production to destroy stockpiles of highly enriched uranium it had to have cooperation with the uh, UN's nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, but that was only supposed to last for about 15 years, and after that, Iran could ramp up its nuclear program full steam ahead legally without any uh, threat of sanctions. Meanwhile, sanctions would be removed in exchange for its uh, partial denuclearization, freeing up billions and billions of dollars for Iran, which even if it didn't go into its nuclear program, it would go into its uh, terror proxy empire, which Iran is known to be si- to siphon off money uh, given for other purposes for that, which of course is one of the, one of the, if not arguably the biggest uh, cause of uh, unrest in the Middle East. And it would also involve Russia getting involved in holding some of uh, Iran's uh, uranium stockpiles, which of course, I mean, Russia is also a rogue nuclear state as well, so you have to wonder what kind of partnership that would be. That was uh, organized in 2015, um, put into effect on January 16th, 2016. Um, Obama's successor in the White House, President Donald Trump, withdrew from the agreement in 2018 because he saw how bad of a deal it was, reimposed sanctions, reimposed uh, a so-called maximum pressure campaign to get Iran to stop its march to the bomb. In response, Iran has ramped up openly 
its nuclear enrichment program. Okay. It has ramped up its uh, enrichment of 60% purity uranium. Uh, that has no known civilian use. 90% is weapons grade. Earlier this year, they announced they have reached uh, or at least gotten trace particles of 84% uh, purity. So, And they've also, of course, with... Uh, producing that they've upgraded their nuclear enriching technology to include advanced centrifuges that again will not be used for civilian purposes so since 2018 iran has really done its part in getting as close to a nuclear bomb as possible and so here we are uh, about five years on from there and is there really a new deal on the table and and you know if so what do we know about this <laughs> Well, there is a new deal as far as what some foreign sources have been saying. What exactly is in that deal is a little bit murky. Um, and the reason for that is because there have been Iranian and even Israeli officials that have confirmed that there is some sort of deal either already enacted or in the works. The United States has been very silent about it uh, for several reasons. One of them is because, like the JCPOA, or the Plan of Action, it is not an official deal. Some people are calling it the some people are calling it the unofficial deal. Others are calling it the mini agreement. But the best way to sum it up is an informal understanding, at least from what we can tell at this point. And the understanding is that if Iran halts its uranium production, just leaves leaves its existing stockpiles as is, then the United States would open up uh, sanctions relief on Iran and start moving forward with a prisoner swap, these kinds of things. Um, there was a similar uh, uh, unofficial deal made as a precursor to the JCPOA that included some of these measures. And so some people are wondering if this is uh, also going to lead up to an official nuclear deal on paper. We don't know that as of yet. And the United States is even being very tight-lipped about what's, uh, or that it even exists. Well, everything we have comes from Iranian sources. So, but it looks like from what we can tell, and especially the fact that the American government isn't commenting on what the Iranians are saying, or even what the Israelis are saying, that there is a type of again, mini agreement in the works. So can you tell us anything more about exactly who these sources are that are reporting on this and uh, any more specifics at all about what they're saying that this new deal may entail? Well, that's again, some of the secrecy. A lot of the sources aren't revealing themselves. We have to rely on quote unquote anonymous sources that uh, otherwise reputable media corporations are citing. So uh, ordinarily, again, you could take what anonymous sources say with a pinch of salt, but it's fact on who's reporting it that makes it more credible. Specifically, there's an April 3rd article from Axios on uh, with their former correspondent from Tel Aviv, Barak Ravid, who cited his, uh, what he called 10 anonymous Israeli officials, Western diplomats, and U.S. experts with knowledge of the proposal. His words, not mine. Um, those again, that's his sources are where we get some of the statistics for these halting the the nuclear enrichment program, uh, the etc. Uh, at that time in a April, it said that he said that Iran rejected the proposal, 
but there has been reason to suspect that Iran has turned its uh, or changed its mind to that since then. Um, on June 12th, Iran International translated comments from Heshmatollah Falahat Pisha, maybe a bit of a mouthful for Western listeners to say, but he was uh, Iran's former parliamentary foreign policy and national security committee head, and he still has connections with the government. And he said that that deal that uh, Ravid talked about, he didn't specifically name uh, Axios or anything like that by name, but that particular deal was going forward specifically that um, the United States would release some of Iran's frozen funds. So you have Israeli sources, you have uh, a pretty prominent Iranian source saying that uh, it's going ahead or at least may, it may not be in place yet, but it's moving towards that. Falahad um, Bisha also said that, um, interestingly enough, both sides, the Iranians and the Americans, don't want to revive the JCPOA that uh, if they were to do that, Iran would have to scale back on some of the developments it had. It, ha it would have to get rid of its stockpiles, its uh, um, advanced centrifuges, etc. And uh, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, has said in public comments that if there's any deal that come, comes by, it has to respect Iran's uh, existing nuclear infrastructure. While the current government in the States is worried that if they were to go public with a, a deal, even if it was a deal that would require Iran to scale back some of these developments, the uh, the opposition from Congress and the U.S. public would be so big that it would never pass. Ergo, the secrecy, ergo, why um, nothing official has come out from the United States about this, and ergo, why they're denying the rumors given or uh, allegations made by Iranian figures and Israeli figures as well. Okay, so yeah, there's there's uh, quite a lot to keep in mind there. What can you tell us about why the United States government seems, you know, it, it seems like there's a real element of desperation here with the U.S. trying to hash out some sort of agreement with the Islamic Republic? Well, for, if you look at it up front, it doesn't make uh, sense. When uh, President Obama came out with his deal, pe people within his inner circle were calling it his, uh, his the foreign policy hallmark of his second term and that sort of thing. Most people didn't buy that. If anything, uh, that deal probably helped Donald Trump, uh, at least in part, win the election. Uh, so it's not like and, – and, and people still have uh, – bad memories of that deal and don't want to go back to that. I'm talking about the American public. I'm talking about figures in the House of Representatives in the Senate. And so, especially considering we're coming up to an election year, this would hurt uh, Joe Biden's chances of the Democrats' chances for re-election. So, on paper, it doesn't make sense. But it makes sense when you realize there is, this isn't about uh, looking good in front of media cameras. And this isn't even about making the world a safer place. If anything, it's the exact opposite of that. There is a deliberate agenda here to empower Iran, and not just in its we nuclear weapons program, but in its sponsoring of terrorism and its security, uh, as opposed to getting uh, overthrown by another revolution at the expense of the United States, at the expense of the state of Israel, at the exp expense of Western democracies. Our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury, has for years and years spoken about that, specifically about a prophecy in Second Kings 14, verses 26 to 28, about a plot to blot out the name of Israel, which means 
the United States of America. We have plenty of literature on our website that explains about that. And the current government in the in Washington, including men like Joe Biden, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who was uh, one of the architects of the original deal, uh, and of course Barack Obama, the the power behind the throne, so to speak, they're a huge part of this plot to blot out the name of Israel. And I mean, what better way to blot out uh, the name of a country than to empower another country, a radical Islamist regime that wants to destroy America, that sees it as the so-called great Satan, that's willing to acquire nuclear weapons and even use it in a nuclear war. If you wanted uh, about as much bang for the buck, uh, no pun intended, to uh, do this sort of thing, empowering Iran, especially in regards to nuclear weapons, is probably the greatest way possible. So there is a uh, a dimension to this development that virtually no one is talking about. What literature specifically would you recommend to listeners who would like to understand all of this in the context of that kind of seldom discussed dimension? Well, we have a lot of resources on thetrumpet.com. One of the ones that I think is most pertinent to Iran's nuclear program especially is a book uh, Mr. Fleury wrote called Great Again. Most of it is on this uh, radical left uh, takeover of the United States government. So it helps, uh, rather than Iran, so it helps fill in some of the background of some of these things I was just talking about. But for Iran specifically, it has a chapter called The Most Dangerous Lie in History. That specifically goes through the process on how the JCPOA came to pass, what its implications are for the world, and of course, most importantly, the spiritual dimension of it and how it ties in with Bible prophecy, with uh, the name of Israel, as we talked about, with promises uh, that God made to ancient Israel way back when and how those promises factor in today. So especially if our listeners want to catch up on the Iran nuclear deal, the history of it and what its implications are biblically, that would be my uh, top recommendation. Great again. Mahalo Zekic has also written an article all about this for the latest issue of the Philadelphia Trumpet. That's the September issue, and it'll be sent to the printers toward the end of this week, I believe. And that article will be up on our website, thetrumpet.com, probably late next week. So please keep an eye out for that there. And in the meantime, check out our show notes on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com to find a link to Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Fleury's book that he just mentioned there called Great Again. We send hard copies of that book out for free, so just click on the link there and you can get a copy heading your way. Well, thanks very much for joining us today, Mihailo. Thank you. Our last word today is about the state of Christendom in the United States and what the lessons are for each of us. For this, we'll turn to trumpet writer Rafaro Manyepa. In many ways, America is leaps and bounds ahead of my home country of Zimbabwe. And like the rest of the world, Zimbabweans want to live, eat, speak, and dress just like Americans. Uh, One reason that we couldn't and don't was the corrupt regime of Robert Mugabe. And it was really bad under him and even under his successor. But perhaps our singularly collective source of pride in his leadership, in Mugabe's leadership, was his refusal to compromise 
with the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual, two-spirit plus agenda. Wow, that's a lot. But most of Africa is the same. To cheers and applause in its parliament, Uganda kicked off quote-unquote Pride Month in June by passing an historic anti-LGBTQ2 plus law. I don't know if I got that right. According to this law, the penalty for having same-sex relations is a 10-year prison sentence. Promoting homosexuality results in a $260,000 fine or 20-year imprisonment. And any homosexual who commits statutory rape while HIV positive is subject to death. According to avowed Christian and Republican Senator Ted Cruz, this Uganda law is horrific and wrong, grotesque and an abomination. Publication named Premier Christianity wrote that we should, quote, offer unconditional compassionate support to LGBT people in our communities and networks, end quote. Another publication, Christianity Today, said, quote, we can't pretend the Ugandan homosexuality law is Christian, end quote. Why is Senator Cruz defending homosexuality? Why is mainstream Christianity increasingly pro-homosexuality? Many Christians today are joining forces with quote-unquote conservative homosexuals to fight against what they consider to be the greater evils of transgenderism and pedophilia. Meanwhile, other churches are wholeheartedly proclaiming a false gospel of queerness. The Presbyterian Church is making prayers to the God of pronouns, while the United Methodist Church is about to ordain a drag queen. The Harvard Divinity School is offering a course on Queering Congregations, Contextual Approaches for Dismantling Heteronormativity. According to a transgender professor at Yale Divinity School, quote, Christianity, rightly understood, is about the transgression of boundaries. Christians believe in a God whose love undoes every binary. All the laws are negated, including the law of contractual sexuality that is marriage. End quote. This is far from the Christianity of the Bible. In 1 John 3 verse 4, the Bible says that sin is the transgression of God's law. Yet many Christian leaders today agree more with the transgender professor than they do with the Bible. They teach that Christ himself abolished God's law through human reasoning they compromise with and even reject the laws of the very God that they claim to worship. Christians today are so powerless in the face of such open, egregious evil because they fundamentally disagree with God's law. They believe that God's law is bad and complicated. In Romans 7 verse 12, God says the law is good. They believe that the law was done away with. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus Christ said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. They think that the law is a litany of impossible, restrictive ordinances. 
But in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, and Galatians 5, verse 14, God says the law defines his way of life, which is love. And then in Matthew 27, verses 37 to 39, Jesus Christ himself confirmed and summarized God's entire spiritual law as love toward God and love toward neighbor. Jesus kept that law, and he never abolished it. The early apostles fought those who wanted to counterfeit Christ's message of forgiveness and salvation and blend it with lawlessness instead, and that's shown in Romans 3 verse 31 and in Jude 1 verse 3. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and Christians say that Christ nailed the law to the cross. So-called Christians today have accepted the very argument that the early apostles were fighting against. They've invalidated laws like the Sabbath and tithing, and they've blended the Bible with tradition and human reasoning to decide their own rules and to create their own rules. They're compromising with sin because they've rejected the law. And now they're just clinging to the belief that Jesus was the Christ while ignoring his command to keep the law. As a result, they find themselves unequipped and underpowered in a fight against sin. That's why Christians have lost their power and are now compromising with homosexuality. And the thing about compromise is it's contagious. When we tolerate and commit sins, we weaken our own standing. Our guilt that we have afterwards makes us willing to tolerate what we otherwise wouldn't. That's why you look around and you see that in the last few decades, we've had an explosion in divorce and fornication, adultery, pornography, homosexuality. And now we've got children's drag shows, puberty blockers, genital mutilation, and even more horrors. See, the problem is mainstream Christianity tends to ignore the crucial point that Jesus Christ made whenever he interacted with sinners. There's an example in John 8 verse 11 where he interacts with an adulterous woman. And at the end of that interaction, Jesus says, go and sin no more. Christ knew that he would die for our sins. If he knew that, why would he bother telling us to stop sinning? Why would he tell us to change our behavior if his brutal death would erase the sin anyway? It's because God hates every instance of law-breaking. That's what it says in Proverbs 8 verse 13. Matthew 5 verse 48 shows that God wants us to become perfect as he is. That's the very purpose for which we were created. Going and sinning more makes us guilty of violating his law. It makes us less like him. It makes us unable to be born into his family. That's why God wants us to stop sinning. He wants us to stop breaking the law. He wants us to start keeping all of his laws. That's why he made the brutal beating and death of his son the steep price that had to be paid for transgressed law. 
Homosexuality is wrong. Breaking the Sabbath is wrong. Failing to tithe is wrong. That's the law. Disbelieving it won't change it. No more than disbelieving the law of gravity will make you fly. God's law is reality and compromising with it will break your power. Well, we are now coming to the end of this episode of Trumpet Hour. Please check out our show notes for today's episode, either on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com to find links to the articles and the other literature that today's reports were based on. You can just search for Trumpet Hour on SoundCloud or visit thetrumpet.com and you'll see it there. Please also send us any comments you may have about today's episode. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Mr. Abraham Blondeau, Mihailo Zekic, and Rafaro Manyepa. Thanks also to Jesse Hester for helping with the audio work for this episode. And thanks most of all to you, the listener, for joining us today. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>